Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Hello, you're listening to The Game Podcast from The Times. My name is Hugh Wisencroft. It's Monday morning, which means we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to be looking at the sheer number of goals already scored in the Premier League. Another great weekend for that. Also, Son and Kane spark a fuse at Spurs this season. But Deli Ali seems to have lost his shine. We'll ask why. Who deserves a flack at Manchester United after their defeat? And the final word in today's The Game Supplement in The Time focuses on the new and dreaded, let's face it, handball rule. We'll dissect that as well. And by the way, The Times today also features a great interview with Gary Lineker talking about Mason Greenwood and Phil Foden. He says they were stupid, but it's time to move on. He's been speaking to our dear colleague, Henry Winter. Check that one out if you can. But without further ado, our cast of journalistic superstars today, Tom Clark, Matt Dickinson and Gregor Robertson. Hello, guys. Hi, Hugh. How are we? I'm all right, mate. I don't know if you can hear it. It was my birthday this weekend. Um, Happy birthday. <clears throat> thank you, thank you. It means that I may be feeling a little bit rough in terms of my voice today. The missus has just brought me a nice lemon and honey tea. It means I might leave all the talking to you guys, to be perfectly honest. Well, I'm Matt- sure um, Leeds fans send their best wishes to you and uh, say happy, <laughs> happy birthday and hope that you had a lovely time. And I thank them, I thank them. I celebrated their victory this weekend more than Manchester United <laughs> being beaten, of course. Um, Matt, it's our debut together. So I wanted yes. to suck up to you by asking you about your article today, obviously on Kepa, Aretha Balaga, having uh, watched that Chelsea game yesterday. Yes, I, I think a game when um, Kepa screws up seems to come around uh, most weeks, doesn't it? It's uh, I, you've, you've got to feel sorry for him in the sense of watching a, a goalie suffer like that. It almost feels you know, a bit agonising. But at the same time, you know, Chelsea has spent a lot of money to be uh, upwardly mobile in the, in the top flight and he's going to stop him at this rate. I mean, as I wrote, you know, sort of, accident waiting to happen you know you, you don't have to wait very long for it and in, in Mano's case he didn't wait at all just charge him down put some pressure on wait for the guy to crack and uh, yeah there was something sort of quite sadly predictable about it yeah another horror moment in the uh, 2-0 defeat by Liverpool Liverpool looking pretty good this weekend Manchester United though the opposite beaten at home by Crystal Palace three goals to one poor let's be honest, but continued their poor form really that we saw as they exited the Europa League. The question is who to blame. You see the reaction on social media from fans. You hear journalists dissecting it. You know, is it Ed Woodward, the executive vice chairman? Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the manager, should he have sorted it out by now? Are the players good enough, which is a big one, which I think, let's be honest, most of those players at Manchester United should have been capable of going past a Crystal Palace in terms of individual talent. Plenty of fingers being pointed, but who's to blame? I mean, I, I mean, you all know who I'm going to say, so I, I'm going uh, <laughs> to back out of kicking Ole Gunnar Solskjaer too soon. I mean, I, I would just pick up on one point you said there, Hugh. You talked about the players being as good as Crystal Palace. I, I don't know whether some of them are as good as Crystal Palace. I think there's this strange thing we still, still, hang, still hang over we've got about Manchester United, <laughs> about how good they actually are. They're, they're not that good, are they? Like The players aren't that good. I mean, Luke Shaw's not a left-back of any kind of great quality beyond a mid-table Premier League side. Um, you know, Scott McTominay is going to be one of those players that will play for a few seasons at Manchester United and then he'll get a move to West Brom or West Ham or something <laughs> and then he'll be at his level. Like, it's not that surprising, this Manchester United team losing to a well-drilled Crystal Palace side with a player of Wilfred Zaha's ability who, when he turns it on, is one of the most talented attackers in the Premier League. I, don't, I just don't think it's that surprising. They're, they're an OK side. They punched above their weight last season. They've got some good young attackers. I don't think it's that much of a surprise when they lose to Crystal Palace. They did finish third in the Premier League last season, which might make it a little bit of a surprise. But Yeah, they did very well. They did very well. <laughs> anyway, let's I'll, put, I'll, yeah, put, I'll, I'll, I'll go and try and put a little bit of a case for the defence in that 35 days, I think, since they, left, they exited the Europa League. Uh, I believe they had 10 days holiday. Um... Players quarantining, Wambasaka quarantining, Dan James looks completely devoid of any sort of confidence. Maguire and Greenwood, as you both know, had pretty traumatic summers in that 10-day break. Uh, 
So there are some, you know, there are some mitigating factors, but you know, like the this the the debate about Manchester United has not changed. This, you know, you can everyone rushes out and says we need to, they need to sign new players, and there's an element of truth to that. But they've signed a lot of players that aren't good enough in the past, so there's no nothing to say they're going to improve upon that. And there's still question marks about Solskjaer because if you look at the team, I disagree with Tom. I mean, that team is full of full of attacking talent, particularly. It, they need. They're not gonna. They're not gonna do anything with Luke Shaw and Lindelof in the back line. So that needs that needs to be improved upon. But Manchester United are better than what what we saw there. And part of that's to do with I still believe the, the man in the dugout. And part of it's to do with this crazy season we're just embarking upon. So we've got two managers already. Let's be honest. Gregor's just mentioned Solskjaer. Tom says it's Solskjaer. Matt Dickinson. Is it the manager after one game? Well, the owners, I, I actually put, I dug my trench pretty deep when uh, Solskjaer was appointed and, and, and said, you know, it, it just struck me crackers when, you know, someone like Pochettino was clearly, or by that stage, already unsettled at Spurs. And, and you know, well, I, I just thought there was a chance that, you know, you should throw everything at going for someone like Pochettino rather than go for someone like Solskjaer, who was, you know, a large part of his appeal was simply that, you know, he was, the, you know, had the DNA. Um and, you know, the, the irony is, of course, that towards the end of last season, there was, um, you know, a lot of signs of improvement. I mean, Bruno Fernandes was turned out to be one of the best, probably, I think, the best signing of last season. I thought there were signs of United making some progress. So I'm not, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I was won over. Oh, yes, I was wrong on Solskjaer. But, you know, I thought, OK, this guy's doing OK. He's starting to, 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 to make a team pretty watchable. Um pretty progressive and so I'm not about to sort of you know lurch uh lurch back and say you know oh this this proves he's hopeless after after a um a dodgy performance but I think that the signs are very clear at the back end of the team they've got big problems uh, you know as the guys have said I, I I disagree with Tom at the front end of that team the fronts yeah you can put together a front you know five that should be capable easily capable of being a champion you know champions league um level team it's the back end which is is weak you know De Gea we know has had the the, the wobbles Vin, Lindelof um full of inconsistency the fullback positions you know Wan-Bissaka not playing suddenly they're exposed so I think there is yeah there's issue and all for all the talk of spending all that money on Sancho I, I think the money needs to go somewhere else in the team I think I'd agree with that Matt as a Manchester United fan a lot of people talk about the transfers at Manchester United the team, the best 11 players all fit at Manchester United should should well be capable of beating teams like Crystal Palace and probably qualifying for the Champions League. But as soon as Manchester United make a few changes, Dan James starting a game, for example, they lose something. I know Greenwood was on the bench. McTominay in midfield, they lose something. And, and, it's, a, and it's a big drop-off. From in, you know, I, I think we saw in the FA Cup game against Norwich when he changed a lot of players and against Lask in the Europa League. When they make six or seven changes, Manchester United, I mean, it might as well be a mid-table team. I think Tom's probably got the point right on that. The best players at Manchester United playing at their best, you know, there there is high quality, but there's inconsistency. There's a lot of inconsistency at Manchester United. And I'm not worried about the season, but then my expectations are low and they have been low year on year. So if Manchester United finished fourth, I'd be absolutely delighted if Manchester United reached the Champions League next year. I'd be absolutely delighted. That, that for me, is not what a club as big as Manchester United with the resources that Manchester United have should be aiming for. But again, if they, they want progression, they need to become, firstly, a team that's regularly in the Champions League. And then it's, then they can worry about progressing to another level. And on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I, don't ever, I never have believed and I still don't believe that he will be the man for that. In fact, if you look at his record reaching, what, two years at Manchester United. Brilliant period at the start. They were on fire. Then another 15 games where they were patchy at best. 15 games, 20 games where they're absolutely brilliant, winning virtually every week. And I think we've entered the second patchy stage now. They will never be a consistently brilliant team unless they have a a brilliant manager. It's coaching. They need better coaching don't they I mean we talk about these best the best teams across the league and we've done it so many times the best teams have good coaches the right system and you know you've just said there Hugh about changing players around the best teams can change players around and still get a result can still play the way they want to play you know look at Arsenal you're telling me that I've just slagged off Man United's 
team and squad. There's a lot of players in that Arsenal squad that once Mikel Arteta's got the squad he wants, they won't be anywhere near the team. But because he's a good coach, he can get a result for them, get them to play the way he wants. And that's where United fall down. As Matt says, yeah, they've got incredibly talented attackers. And when they all play and everyone clicks and everyone fires, yeah, they can score five or six. But then you you need to be able to, when Palace turn up and Wilfred Zaha's on form, you need to find a way of breaking them down and getting getting a victory. And the coaching's not good enough to do that. It's, it, you know, they, they, Solskjaer's done a brilliant job I'm giving him a kick in all the time but he's done an excellent job he's done far better than I thought he would and third last season was unbelievable but he's gone as far as they can go and you know, they, as you said the signings is an interesting point as well because Matt's mentioned in Sancho they're in a weird place in terms of the transfer market which is a very different beast this summer where, where, you know, Edward Woods realised that he's maybe been mugged off a little bit in the transfer window at various different points and he's got to try and be a bit clever about it when he's not really got that reputation. He's not got the reputation of a Michael Edwards as a shrewd business operator. So he's got to try and work out a way of how can I get better deals? And in the meantime, the team still needs to perform. So that's where you need a better coach, I think. I think there's a, there's nuance in this. It's, you know, they didn't lose because of Solskjaer at the weekend. Um, they didn't lose, so that doesn't mean they just have to go out and spend £100 million on Sancho. Uh, Edward Woodward... Is to blame a little bit because he's spent a lot of money pretty badly, um, but Manchester United should still be doing better than what we saw there. That's that's like uncontested. I also think we have to give some credit to to Palace quickly. I mean, Zaha was outstanding. Um, There's an absolutely great nugget in Bill Edgar's col- uh, column today that says that in the last two years, Palace has scored three goals in a league match away against Liverpool, Man City, Man United, and Arsenal. So there's very few teams in the Premier League, actually, who are as adept at setting up, being very difficult to break down and then outstanding on the counter, counter-attack. So, you know, I think Hodgson and Palace deserve credit too. They do, but if you look at what Roy Hodgson's team did, I mean, that you would expect the minimum of a club like Manchester United, which was to everyone know their roles, for one, to be solid and execute it. It, it didn't happen. I mean, it didn't get remotely near happening for Manchester United. You say Solskjaer didn't lose the game, but it's a it's a repetitive story. In fact, I was about to ask our producer, John, to just lift this piece of audio and we'll insert it every time Manchester United lose a game for the rest of the <laughs> podcast because it's going to be the same That's conversation. True. And yeah. at, at some point, the manager has to have some, some, some sort of responsibility over how his team plays. He knew what Crystal Palace, we all know what Crystal Palace were going to do. You know, are you telling me that a Jurgen Klopp, a Pep Guardiola, even a Frank Lampard sends a team out there that's devoid of creative ideas against Sacco, McCarthy, MacArthur, all who played well, by the way. But but surely there is some sort of formula to get the best out of a side like Crystal Palace. Look at the videos, watch the tape, what has worked against them. Manchester United had, had no clue, really. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think Gregor did make the point. I think you've they have had... Um... You know, a, a lot of, and I sound, you know, sound like an excuse for them. I don't particularly want to. They underperformed, and there's no doubt about it. But I just think, you know, lurching in uh, after the disruption, um, and they've had, you know, as much as as many teams, if not more, in 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 some ways. I I, I think, you know, let's let's. I know it's not the um, the world's greatest uh, pundit line, but I do think we have to give it a couple of weeks before. Um, Sort of, you know, lurch into sort of huge conclusions from uh, from one game. Oh, I think that's perfectly fine, Matt. To be perfectly honest with you, it's sorry to sorry to be boringly boringly sensible on no, that one. Fine. But you know, I can agree with that. See, we should lurch in, but at the same time, completely agree with you in that we will be having this conversation about twenty times this season, if as long as Solskjaer is in the job. So that so so that that fact in itself is a kind of is a pretty dispiriting one for Manchester United fans. They know you know it's kind of we're we're trudging along. It's okay. It's you know there's kind of little little bursts of of excellence and you know promise with Greenwood and players coming through and you know they might make a a big sign and it'd be like oh that's you know another few weeks they'll get a few results and then this will happen again. We'll have the same debate and we'll have the same worries about Woodward and about Solskjaer you know, up against the best coaches in, in the world, you know, who is competition in the Premier League. So that fact is quite dispiriting for Manchester United fans and I can understand why at the, on the first game of the season, you're like, oh, again. 
And also the Rashford, I mean, I have to say, there are the bigger, you know, Rashford, I mean, what's happened to Rashford's form? It's gone, you know, it's been a long time since we thought, yeah, you know, Rashford looks like a player of vast promise, you know, where's his best position? Is he going to be a central striker? Could he play wide? You know, he can do both brilliantly. What, you know, what, what are we going to see from him? You know, we're sort of waiting for him to become, you know, you know, one of the, the most sort of thrilling strikers around. And um, yeah, it's been a long time since we've had that discussion as well, which again, you know, is that about his mood? Is that uh, and confidence? Is that about the talk of Sancho? Is that about the fact that Greenwood has almost usurped him? Is that about coaching? Is that about Solskjaer and um, what he's what he's getting out of that that talent? There's another difficulty as well, isn't there? In the, the easy thing to say is, oh, they need to sign players. But we've seen already that the transfer window is a very different beast this time around. Clubs, even as big as Manchester United, will be feeling a slight financial pinch of the last few months. And as I said earlier, Edward Wood doesn't want to, you know, be seen to be, you know, getting a bad deal for his club. I, I would argue that actually the signing of Donny Van Der Beek is probably one of the smartest transfers Manchester United have made in a long time, in terms of spotting a player that was, you know, highly rated, young, and getting a very good fee for him between 30 to 40 million pounds and that's the kind of deal that you need you know look at Liverpool they've signed Thiago I mean how the hell they've managed to pull that off I've no idea but that's what Woodward's got to do whilst also being told you've got to sign Sancho you've got to sign you know Upamecano from uh, Leipzig you know you've got to spend 200 million that just doesn't exist anymore and I mean it's it's a difficult thing and as you say Gregor it's like these little incrementals so they'd be better off surely maybe picking one position between now and the end of the window and going, right, let's try and improve that one position and then maybe make an incremental improvement. And that, to me, would be signing a better left-back than Luke Shaw because I, I don't know where you're going to get good value to improve Lindelof in the in this window with this with this time to go. Hugh, I don't know whether you've got, as a United fan, is there one position oh, you'd want to see them yeah, improve? Well, I'm, if I, I mean, could give you we... one, one, one signing. Mate, we've already got a player called Chris Smalling who's better than Victor Lindelof, to be perfectly honest. We don't have to go into the market to get a better centre-back. Um, there is one position. Look, left-back, I think, needs addressing. Um, I find it odd that they sold a centre-forward for £78, £79 million in Lukaku. Still haven't got a replacement for him. As, as I mean, Odi Nogalo was given an extended loan deal. I mean, is that the sort of player that, that a club like Manchester United needs? Um I find that to be very, very odd. Thomas Partey's release clause, 50 million euros. Find it odd that we didn't go in for him. Upper Meccano, I think Leipzig, they were talking about 37 and a half million. Didn't go in for him. I mean, all these things could happen by the end of the window, but I would rather have got two, even squad players, people that you'd say are the 13th, 14th and 15th players, you know, best players at the club. I'd rather improve that area than thinking that we need even first-choice players because the depth is poor at Manchester United and the depth loses them games like this. They put out their best team, they score four or five against Brighton and Bournemouth and people rave about them. You know, these are the games that decide where they finish in the league ultimately. You know, the harder games against tougher sides who maybe aren't the most brilliant teams in the league, but certainly if you're not 100% on it, you won't win. Um Listen, in terms of Manchester United's transfer dealings, listen, I asked who's to blame. I'm one of those people that likes to blame Ed Woodward for the <laughs> squad being as it is, because that's his role. But I but I also think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer needs responsibility because you heard me criticise Frank Lampard for his one season at Chelsea because they had the same issues at the start of the season and the end of the season. I was like, a good coach solves issues over 50 games. I mean, 50 games to sort out a glaring error in the way that your team plays. If you don't do that, you, for me, you're not a great coach. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been there almost two years. Same way of losing matches, same way of not creating chances, same way of, of losing these matches at home as well has been evident throughout. So what do you want me to say? You know, the manager at some point, he, he will end up taking responsibility because... Ed Woodward's the, the Teflon Don of, of Manchester United. I mean, nothing sticks to him. Doesn't matter how badly they play. So it would be, it will be Oli Gunnar Solskjaer before it's him. Ah, rant over. <laughs> I can Some breathe silence again. on the other end. I can, yeah, I know. This is not me taking care of my voice at all, by the way. Um, 
look, let's talk about a more positive result. In fact, it's more positive for me because I, I tipped Spurs to be in the top four at the end of the season after they lost on the opening weekend and stank out the place. I was getting a lot of messages from people saying, what about that shout for Spurs for top floor? So I was happy to see them score after goals this weekend. Their campaign given the kiss of life. Harry Kane, Hyung Min Son. I mean... 5-2 against Southampton, you know, it's not the result of the season, but four goals for Son, a goal and four assists for Kane. Amazing day for both of those and those that had them in their fantasy teams. Really annoyed that one of my best mates had them both. Spurs fan that had them both. So <laughs> I thought I had a great week. Virtually all my players scored at least one goal, including James Justin. But I've been beaten in my league once again. Uh, listen, Spurs brilliance. Let's focus on them rather than my fantasy team. Was it more brilliance from Tottenham or was it more ineptitude from Southampton that meant we saw that scoreline at St. Mary's? What do you think? It's a bit of both. I mean, Southampton, they, they, pressed, they, they pressed high, but they didn't press the ball. So, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. And But having said that, some of... Kane's through balls for Son were just exquisite, it's particularly the last one. It's kind of past that you know, most people are face, basically facing the touchline and at one glance over his shoulder, he's taken in the whole vista, the whole picture, and he's just put it on, his, on a plate. It's an absolutely exquisite pass. So, you know, they were punished. If you look to like the XG and the chances created and stuff, there wasn't that much between it. Southampton had, had, had plenty of chances and opportunities of their own and, you know, with better finishing, it may have been a different scoreline, but they were punished severely and you know it's got to be a little bit worried for Southampton the number of goals they're conceding and you know they can go from being this really kind of high octane thrilling team that, that 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 when it clicks they're a real real handful to play against to looking really so disjointed and and you know giving up so many chances so uh, a little bit worrying for Southampton they're kind of a bit of a yo-yo team at the moment and um <laughs> So I think, you know, it was both. So Hampton really, really kind of sort of stretched and, and, and left huge gaps for Spurs to, 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 to take, take, a, take advantage of, and they certainly did. There is an issue with Southampton to me in that, speaking of fantasy football, I remember a game last season when Manchester City lost 1-0 there and I had a half half a team full of Manchester City players and watched in agony as they missed chance after chance after chance. They do always seem to give the opposition chances. They're not, you know, the kind of Sean Dyche Burnley type team who, when they win at home, they, they're very solid and, you know, dogged. They do press incre- incredibly well, but the, the trouble is with any pressing side, if you can beat the press, you, you're in you're in behind them and you've found space. I, I would say that, yeah, that they're a very exciting team. They're great for a neutral. I would always watch Southampton because you know you're going to get an entertaining game one way or another. But as Gregor said, if, as a Southampton fan, I'd perhaps be a little bit worried. I would also just like to say that perhaps, you know, we, the media in general, owe Harry Kane a little bit of a nod to a few years ago when we were all talking about, oh, Harry Kane can't score goals anymore, blah, 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 blah. And a few people, Tottenham fans in particular, were telling me, no, he's changing his game. And he was starting to do that, you know, dropping deeper a bit more to link the play. And then, you know, you're now seeing the the benefits of that and seeing what an incredibly talented overall attacking player he's become. You know, he burst onto the scene, it was all about scoring goals, getting in behind, getting on the end of chances. As Gregor said, some of that creative play, some of the vision, if that had been Bruno Fernandes, Thiago, etc., you know, it would have been endless, endless discussion about it. I know he's got praise but I do think there's an element of where he should be acknowledged for how well he's changed his game and improved and broadened out his game to the benefit of others and to the benefit of Tottenham to make sure that he's not just that one trick pony getting in the box I mean those assists were absolutely unbelievable I think they were fantastic to be fair to Gareth Southgate, I think we saw a lot of that with, that came through with England, um, certainly yeah. through to the 2018 World Cup. I think you know that was almost more, it was more obvious with England than it was at Tottenham that, that he was becoming that player who, you know, the way that England were playing, where he would drop deep and then you'd have flyers like you know Sterling and 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 Rashford going off. So you know, I think um, say I, I'm sure Harry Kane will give a nod to Southgate as well for 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 developing that part of his, his football but obviously when you've got a player like Son to, to, to run through it's 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 when yeah and you have a defence like that that's just asking for those balls to be flipped behind um, I mean it's interesting I saw Mourinho saying that obviously Hoiberg had, had sort of given them a rundown on you know this is how Southampton will play you know this is this is the lock we have to pick and it was it was you know I, I think when you saw the first 
first one happened, you think, oh, well, that's, you know, they'll do something to fix that. And then, yeah, by about the fifth one, you're thinking, yeah, um, they haven't clearly haven't got the message. I do love the fact that Jose Mourinho immediately came out and made it so that Pierre-Emil Hoiberg could never go back to Southampton yeah. ever again. <laughs> Just sold him out completely with his first answer in his first interview. He also did that thing with Sunday about, the, you know, interrupting his interview afterwards. When you see this player and he's, you know, absolutely on, you know, cloud nine, he scored the goals and, you know, he's having the, and suddenly, you know, manager interrupts and says, Harry Kane, play, best player. <laughs> yeah. And you just think, like, thanks. I think Jose must think he's just permanently being recorded on a documentary now. <laughs> yeah, that did look, that did feel like you were watching the Amazon documentary, yeah. You do wonder whether he's there doing the washing up, like commentating to himself and just <laughs> thinking the whole time, I'm, I'm being filmed here. It's like, he's, he's, all, he's always been a bit of a performer, but it, it seems like everything he's doing now is he's just conscious of, are they watching me? I mentioned, I mentioned that line that I got messaged by a Spurs fan in high dungeon because I'd, I'd sort of called them, yeah, lesser football team and more of a soap opera now because on the back of watching the, um, what you say, entirely staged um, non-documentary that was the... Uh, <laughs> The all or nothing series, but yeah, I think you're right. It just feels like um, it's the sort of you know Jose's just going to sort of pop up uh, and try and sort of crash any scene that's going. Basically, <laughs> I did feel a little bit sad for Son in, in that moment because I haven't seen a haven't seen a player score four goals before, and then his manager go in front of all the cameras. You weren't the man of the match; someone else was. <laughs> but testament maybe to Harry Kane's performance, as you pointed out. Um, interestingly, as well, some of the reaction to that. Five, those five goals and those two playing so well was sort of an element of if you add a Gareth Bale to all of this, well, then Spurs are going to be absolutely sensational. And imagine what Bale will bring to that front three. And I saw people asking, is it going to be as good as any front three in the Premier League? And I thought all of that was was exaggerated and way too soon as well, mainly because Gareth Bale's not going to be fit for ages. But I think when you really look at the way that Gareth Bale plays... He's an excellent player, but is he going to fit in that sort of selfless element that Kane and Son usually bring to their play? Because I think that's part of the reason that they often link up so well. Both of them has an eye for a goal, but also both of them likes to put the other one in. And, and, and the way that Bale cuts in so centrally onto his left foot, that negates sometimes the player running through the middle. OK, you can slip the ball through. But we know what Bale likes to do. He likes to curl it towards the far post, have a smash. He's got a great left foot. But it narrows, it narrows the play, if you see what I mean, unless one of them's going to overlap on the other side. I'm not going to say that they're not going to play well together, but, you know, this element that, oh, my God, they're both going to score 20 goals each, Kane and Son. And what? imagine if Bale scores a 20 as well. Well, I just don't think it's going to be like that. I don't think if Bale comes and excels in front of goal, I think that will take something away from the other two's goal scoring rather than add goals necessarily. I, don't, I think Bale, you know, Bale's sort of... His game's changed a bit too. He can play through the middle. He could, you know, Kane could still be that guy who's dropping off to link up, link play. And actually, Bale could be that guy too. I think there's a lot of, you know, flexibility in that in that front three when it eventually manifests itself. So, you know, also the stature, the fact that Gary Kane is Mr. Spurs. He's the guy that everyone, you know, relies upon. You saw when he, in the referring to the documentary again, you know, it was like it was like a death in the family when Harry Kane injured his. Uh, his ankle was it? I think. Um, no, no, his hamstring. He you know, tore his hamstring in the documentary, and it was like he's out for three months, and the, the medical staff looked like they you know they were terrified to tell Josie. <laughs> so, you know, having having another player that's of that stature, I, I think that can only be good for Spurs. It takes the kind of heat off off Kane, and I think there's you know there's there's a kind of there's there's potential for flexibility and a bit of fluidity in that front three personally because I think they're they're all quite adaptable agree Matt nodding along um, yeah I, I, I think so I mean the only th I, I think the biggest thing and obviously you know the fact that you know no sooner they sort of drum rolled the announcement he was joining that they then have to say oh excuse me he's, he's not going to be playing for a month I, I, I think you know we have seen him obviously for Wales we've seen him you know five minutes here or there for, for Real Madrid but I think the the fascination I have as a fan is just wondering what is left you know at, uh, of his um, I think, you know, I used to sort of call it bionic sort of running powers. I mean, it, you know, that it was one of the great sights in world sport was to see Gareth Bale at full tilt. I mean, you know, we go back to the Inter Milan and the class and the goal he scored uh, in the Copa del Rey. And, you know, we've seen him, you know, run off the pitch and still beat players back. And it was it was a phenomenon. I mean, it was, you know, and 
yeah, I just haven't seen enough of him regularly. No one has because he hasn't been playing to know how much of that power is left. And that's that's one of the, I think, you know, great fascinations of this deal is that, you know, he's 31. Um, you know, that's, you know, he shouldn't be too old for it. But at the same time, you know, say he's got this injury, he's had bits and bobs of injuries at Real Madrid. And yeah, I, I just think, you know, we're talking about could he do that sun roll through the middle? Can it, you know, what type of, uh, addition is he going to be to that attacking front three? Well, until we see what is left of that running power, extraordinary running power, it's, it's almost hard to know, isn't it? It's going to be a difficult call, I think, as you hinted at, Hugh, for Jose to make in terms of when he plays him and where he plays him. Because there is an element of where if, as Matt suggests, he's not the same player that we loved back, you know, all those years ago in the Premier League. You know, the likes of Lucas Moura, Lamella, they do a hell of a lot of defensive work for Tottenham as well. And they do a hell of a lot of work off the ball, linking play. I mean, there's an element as well with Gareth Bale. You wonder whether just purely the aura will have a factor for the first few games when he plays. You know, teams will be so preoccupied about what Gareth Bale is going to do. What's he going to do? You know, maybe Harry Kane will start scoring even more goals and maybe he'll benefit a little bit. But that's where maybe Tottenham fans and we as football fans might have to dampen our you know excitement mm. a little bit and think that maybe Gareth this Gareth Bale will be I don't know a different a completely different beast and we'll have to accept mm. a Gareth Bale that does the odd few good little linking tricks flicks gets a few assists maybe bangs the odd one in the top corner but it, it's just no, it's not going to be the same season that season under VS Boas I mean that was just a complete yeah. one-off piece of brilliance wasn't it Interestingly, when I was thinking about how they might play, you mentioned, Matt, the running power of Gareth Bale and the aura. If he has either of those two things to the same degree and Jose wants to play this, I hate to use the term, low block, deep defensive style and then break on teams, if he still has that running power, Gareth Bale, and if Son, we know what great running power he has and he shows in abundance at the weekend as well. Um, then we might see this role for Harry Kane where he drops a little bit deeper. And if you're going to break quickly on teams, do you push Gareth Bale up? And does he suddenly become the focal point of your attack, Gareth Bale? In which case, again, you take something slightly away from from Harry Kane in terms of his ability to score as many goals. I think, I, personally, I think the, the thing that was that struck me about Tottenham's win at the weekend was that it clearly, clearly Kane and you know Kane finding pockets of space. To, to to play through so you know to to take advantage of how, how much of a high line they play, that that was kind of like a striking tactical sort of plan, and that's mm. rare for Tottenham now. So this is the thing: Gareth Bale actually is a big galactical signing, and that's what Jose Mourinho really is kind of used to doing, and that's what he wants. So you know, I, I actually think we're probably you know we're maybe overanalyzing this a little bit. I think he'll just think I can put Gareth Bale, Harry Kane, and Son in the front three, and we'll get the ball up to them, and they're three. You know, world-class players. Uh, th- that's the kind of thing that Josie Mourinho does. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, you know, they, 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 although the the documentary was was a, as Matt says, it wasn't really a documentary. It was a kind of PR thing. The the, the amount he talked about pressing was just was really striking to me. And that Tottenham's pressing really doesn't look. It looks pretty much non-existent. So, you know, that that's that is one of that's one thing. You know, Hugh, you alluded to that that, you know, Gareth Bale, Kane. So Son does a lot of work, Mura does, but you know, I, I'm not sure how he fits into that if that's what he sees for, for in Tottenham's future, you know? Listen, Bale's coming through the door. Let's move on to a player who might be going out of the door, left out of the squad at the weekend at Spurs and for their game in the Europa League. Back-to-back games, not even on the bench for England's Deli Alley. What's gone wrong for Deli Alley? Do we think he'll leave the club? Um it's surprising in a way because we, we I think we saw his reputation grow and grow. But over the last couple of seasons, it's 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 not surprising. He's just not at the level that Spurs would want. I think Deli Ali is one of those players in modern football that suffered a little bit from being very talented, very young and being able to play in quite a few different roles to quite a good seven, eight out of ten level. And that maybe has meant that now when he should be at the peak of his powers, he suffered a little bit. You know, we saw him burst onto the scene, breaking into the box, scoring headed goals, getting on the end of crosses. For England, he played in that kind of midfield five, had to drop deep, do a lot of defensive work at the 2018 World Cup. 
to, uh, you know, I think it's most striking when I, whenever I speak to friends who are Tottenham fans, I get a lot of different analysis as to what Deli Ali is and what his best position is. You see him have a game where he's nipping into tackles, maybe gets booked, has a bit of fire in his belly, you know, nicking the ball. And one Tottenham fan says that that's Deli Ali. That's what Deli Ali does. Then another game where he's flicking and do, pulling off outrageous little tricks and flicks. And another Tottenham fan says that's what Deli Deli Ali does. And no one really knows. And and how do you convey that into one position on a football pitch? You can't because you know that 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 role doesn't exist. So he fills different roles, I think, to a very effective manner, but in a not maybe a headline grabbing way that he did at the start of his career. So I. I think maybe Jose's taking a decision that maybe we can get a decent fee for him. We've got three attacking players, as we've already discussed, can make the midfield very solid. I can I can make forty million from Deli Ali, but I don't think that should reflect badly on Deli Ali necessarily. I don't think his career's gone that badly, really. I agree with. That. I mean, I think there was, you know, he, he was generally you know a sort of number 10 when he was making his n- name in those early uh, times at Tottenham he, as you, as Tom says sort of flicks around the box breaking into the box and I think the nature of the nature of how Tottenham's developed and how England developed he's had to well the pressure's been on him to to become a number eight basically someone who's you know playing with sort of driving play forward more and there's been some faltering in that but you know I, I think we have to consider his attitude as well I don't think there's any doubt about that um, you know I think yeah there was a time where w- when it started to go wrong um, with England Southgate left him out um, wasn't happy with his attitude in training we've obviously seen from the the non-documentary that um, <laughs> that uh, Jose you know feels like he's you know and it, it, it sort of becomes one of the biggest themes of that of just how you know, Mourinho instantly decides that he's got to prod it and got to wind him up and got to be on his case all the time it's you know I think it's the sort of yeah the, almost like the biggest theme from it is just this this you know he decided that that's that's what it's going to take and I you know I I think if it was just Jose I I would sort of wonder you know wonder if it says more about the manager and the player but the fact is that Southgate had had issues with him as well about application and focus and I I think you know that has to be that has to be part of weighing up um I think there's been sort of um developmental issues in in him as a player and say in that role which I, I think that's just a young player trying to work out, you know, what he does best. But I do think uh, he has, you know, faulted himself temperamentally as well. I'd say maybe uh, one more reference to the non-documentary. Maybe everyone's just really, <laughs> really bored of his mundane conversation while lying on a on a bed waiting for a massage, asking <laughs> things like, "What's your favourite chocolate bar?" Or uh, <laughs> what do you do? Do you put the water on the toothpaste when you're brushing your teeth first, or do you do put the toothpaste on first then the water? It's like, oh my god! I've, honestly, 15 years I spent listening to that kind of conversation. <laughs> I was in the physio room. I was like, wow. Gregor, make sure we never go for a drink because that is exactly my pub chat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Love Noted. that kind of thing. If you could only eat one fruit for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, <laughs> I was very surprised to see him linked in the papers with Paris Saint-Germain. I mean, but then I remembered that Eric Maxin Chupo moting plays for Paris Saint-Germain, who is clearly <laughs> the Leicester City of football transfers. Well, Leicester City won it. Well, Chupo moting does play for them. So I guess anyone's got a shot. I mean, I don't know what he offers to Paris Saint-Germain, but I think you're right. If Jose Mourinho gets the right money, then he could be leaving the club. Well, I'm, I, you know, mentioning just something you referred to, Gregor, I am sort of always... Um, I'm always wary of Jose Mourinho and his desire to always make it about one particular player at any given moment in time, even if they're not in the team. You know, there's, there's, there's always, there always seems to be a focus on a player who's not quite up to scratch. And, and sometimes I feel it is a bit about him sending a message to the rest of the squad. You know, I gave Delhi an opportunity. He didn't listen to my way. Now he's in Paris or wherever he ends up. And I think he almost tried that with Ndombele to begin with. And now he, he's moved on to Delhi Alley. You know, whether they're in the team or not, I'm always wary that he wants to send a message to the rest of the squad with, with certain players. And I'm just hoping that Delhi Alley isn't, isn't currently the player that he's focused on. But there you go. Uh, lots of chat about Spurs. There you go, Spurs fans. You'll be happy this week. You're listening to the game podcast from the Times. Uh, just a reminder, we've got brand new episodes Monday, Thursday as well. Make sure uh, you hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. You'll stay in the loop with everything we've got for you. Open wide and t- 
Stuck In to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. One thing, by the way, that was evident, in fact, just talking about Spurs again in their win over Southampton more widely, some atrocious defending so far this season, generally speaking, across the games. 62 goals scored in the Premier League in just 16 matches, an average of nearly four goals a game. Well, 3.875 per game to be exact. But are we basically watching, because we had no real preseason, are we basically watching teams currently figuring out how they should be playing and, and currently still getting used to being out there on the pitch? Gregor, what's it like to have no preseason and then try and throw yourself back in there? <laughs> uh, the number of injuries I had, I could say that really was most seasons for me. Um, <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> no, it is, because there's something like... Uh, I remember when I first kind of hung up my boots. I wrote a few a few months had passed, and I wrote a piece about you know how the sort of realization dawning that it was over. And the thing I missed at that moment in time most was the feeling of absolute peak fitness and having you know you you for six weeks or whatever you put your body through you know hell, but it feels damn good at the end of it. And that you know the players they won't have that now. They can't possibly have that. They've not had enough of time to have a rest and they've not had enough time to to really get to that peak fitness level as well. So, yeah, I think we probably will see an element of that this season. Um, I think also possibly the fact that there's no fans in the stadium still. I, I, I think that, you know, personally, if, if, if you're playing in a, in a game and there's not that same sensory sort of overload around you, everything is just drops of a percent or two. Uh, so I think there's probably... a, a a few factors. I also think, though, just if you look around, how many clubs in the Premier League need defenders? I mean, I think you could say West West Ham, Leicester, Burnley, Man United. I'd say Man City still are going to try and take another centre-half. You know, Arsenal got Gabriel, but they could probably have another. Spurs, Dier is not looking <laughs> up too much. There are a lot, you know, it's a position that... A lot of clubs are desperately looking for players and they're not really finding them either. So I think there probably is an issue with the kind of quality of defending as well. I was speaking to a Premier League manager last week about that and the, the, the thing he stressed most of all, um, that, uh, yeah, basically, almost literally the cry was out of sort of, do you know any good centre-halves out there? It was, um, I think it is, it's been a problem position for a couple of years, I think, in terms of scouting, the hardest, almost the hardest one to, 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 to block. And I think that's that's definitely one of, I think, quite a few factors. I mean, Leeds, Leeds to be fair, uh, Leeds are on a permission to 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 to, ma- to make this a record scoring season, obviously Absolutely, themselves, yeah. aren't they? And we are we are early on, but I think all those factors Gregor mentions are are, are true. But yeah, we can ignore the fact that I just think matches are, you know, they are scratching their head a bit, thinking, um, you know, it's 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 a it's a good time to um, yeah to uh, to be a talented centre half because your uh, your value is uh, on the rise, that's for sure. I think there's another element to the pre-season thing in the modern football with so much analysis that goes on the data teams that top sides have I mean Greg I don't know how much this is a factor as well as well as being fit and being prepared physically being prepared off the pitch in terms of your research you've done if you think about the turnaround we've had you know if a team a defense coach wanted to go back and go through with a right back okay this is what your season was like this is this is where you were strong but look at this six games in a row you got turned on the inside and, you know, the guy got a shot away. There wasn't that time for anyone to do that kind of work. Yeah, it'll still happen, I'm sure, and they'll have crammed it in. But in terms of that, you know, if you think about uh, Raheem Sterling with Pep Guardiola and the preseason when we saw him drilling into him, you know, take the ball, turn, get a shot off. And that kind of coaching work surely can't happen in the short space of time, can it? I mean, I don't know what it was like back in your day, Gregor, when you were playing, in terms of the prep you would do on your last season, where you could improve, the teams and players you're going to be coming up against? Or was that a week-to-week thing that'll happen anyway? I think the main thing is, is the yeah, really preparation for the for the next game. And it really is a case now that, uh, I can't remember, I was reading an interview the other day, that was, you know, basically you play the game, 
you have a rest recovery day and the next day is kind of preparation for the next game and so you're you're going you'll be going through kind of team and and tactical overview things but i don't i think you're probably right there'll be less time to to work on individual matters like that but personally i think the biggest issue is the fact that there's there's a kind of dearth of quality defenders i also think one other thing is that it's been a gradual move this hasn't happened just over overnight is that there's a lot more asked of particularly central defenders now you know you they're asked to, they often have the most touches of any player on the pitch during a game and they you know play the most passes and you know building the play from from the back and we've seen you know arsenal or chelsea are, are kind of taking this to new lengths as well and trying to build out from the back and maybe not quite always quite good enough as Kepa proved so there's also an element of defenders are being asked to to do more and they're taking more risks and that's obviously going to give up more chances so uh, it's also maybe a stylistic element to to the way the game's traveling as well i mean i guess on the value just look at what's happening is it you know tarkowski's what i mean his values you know they're going up to 30 35 million plus i mean you're thinking hang on a minute <laughs> you know you know he's a he's a good job in premier league center half but you know if you're talking you know 30 million plus um that just shows shows the problem really I think one of the interesting things for me in terms of players at Burnley, for example, over the years, is clearly Sean Dyche gets them to defend really, really well in his system. And, you know, Michael Keane went to Everton and then was getting exposed every single week and didn't look half the player. And I, th- I, I just worry that James Tarkovsky might leave Burnley and we suddenly might be thinking, what on earth is going on here? Because the system is great for the defenders. Even Ben Mee, who in fact, when Michael Keane was at the club, struggled to play struggle to regularly start and he looks a fantastic defender now but there's an element of they defend as a team they defend aggressively you know they haven't got a particularly high line and obviously you move higher up the league and and suddenly you're one-on-one with Raheem Sterling on the halfway line that is a totally different job to defending the edge of the six yard box Uh, sorry 18 yard box but that's an interesting point isn't it and that's links what you said with what Gregor said about whether the way game is changing over the last five, ten years, attackers have had to do more defending, and now defenders have got to do more creative play. You know, I'll, and this is almost why I wonder where the modern fascination with fullbacks is coming from, because they can defend, they're quick, they're agile, they can attack. You know, we're going to get to a point. Some, you know, you saw people doing it, joking about the talented England right backs. You should just have a team full of fullbacks across the pitch who can create. Maybe have one striker up front who you know is going to score some goals because that is a massive part of defending. If your midfield and attack aren't working for you, you're just going to be exposed and have players turned running at you, and yeah, you're going to look like a pretty crap defender if you've got no help around you. So there's, there's that's massive element to me in the way the um, game is changing. What's interesting is, I think, you know, we saw Fernandinho play centre-back for Manchester City last year quite successfully, given his age and, you know, the physical demands. He was, I think, at some certain points, fantastic. Fabinho played centre-back for Liverpool this weekend and did a pretty good job. There was talk of Declan Rice leaving West Ham to go to Chelsea to play centre-back, you know, holding midfielders by trade. Indeed, he did now- it for Leicester as well this weekend, I think, yeah. I was wondering about McTominay. In fact, we were arguing, I was arguing about it with one of my kids the other day about whether McTominay would be better off, um, you know, given what we were talking about, United's defensive problems, trying him there. If you saw him for Scotland, though, I'm not sure. You may be right back <laughs> on that one. <laughs> you know, and I think, it, I, I think it is interesting because when we've seen as well a lot of fullbacks playing a back three, where previously we might have said the fullback is going to be the weaker one in a back three. In fact, because they are more agile, because they're usually quicker, because a lot of them are good on the ball, uh, more forward thinkers in fullback positions as well. So those forward passes are usually better quality. Um, I, I don't think we're going to see a fullbacks all the way across a back four, but certainly if you're a pretty tall midfielder who can head it and read play, then you, you've got a chance of playing centre-back at the moment. So it's going to be an interesting one. But I think, I wonder how long we'll see these goals. Because I think, I do think that the crowd plays a difference. And I think the intensity will go up. I think these first couple of weeks, you know, it's not that the games have completely lacked intensity, but I think the concentration level and the aggression level fans make a difference. You know, the concentration level for me hasn't been great. Even if I watched, I watched, I think the final goal yesterday and and, and not to call out Carl Walker-Peters in particular, but he had a look at Son 
he was, who was closer to the goal than he was and onside, decided he wasn't going to get back goal side of him, thought about it again, still decided he wasn't going to get goal side of him, tried to step up at one point, and they've already scored four goals, three of them already at that point from Son. He stepped up and let him run at goal. I mean, those sorts of things have to get ironed out, and I, I think that will come with, you're right, Tom, the coaching and the time to work on things. Um, so we'll see. Look, I'll be delighted if every goal has four goals in it for the rest of the season, but I don't think it, I, I don't think it'll be great for the league. It's worth keeping an eye on, definitely, though. I mean, the, just to add, there was 100 goals in, I think, 34 games in the EFL, across the EFL as well, uh, on Saturday alone. So, like, you know, the external factors could be could be uh, could be playing a significant role so it's definitely worth keeping an eye on but that goes down the leagues as well you know Gregor you watch a lot of football league as well you know we've seen it haven't we even down into league one league two teams trying to play out from the back wanting to play possession football that's where it's going to come from you know I remember a game a few seasons ago or maybe last season I think it was Rochdale got hammered by Peterborough or something was it and I think four of the goals all came from defenders passing it straight to a striker and them scoring but then later in the season Rochdale played some great stuff but that's where it, you know that's that's the desire isn't it in modern football to play that way and that's that's until people get it right there's going to be a load of goals well as I say and having um, as if I don't talk about QPR enough on this podcast but um, <laughs> the uh, yeah all you have to do is watch QPR to realise that yeah absolutely there is an ambition to play like you know, Man City, Barcelona, and and then you know, complete incapability of doing it under any type of pressure. But it's yeah. there is is it's like you know, I admire the ambition, I admire the intent, um, and I scream every time it goes wrong. So it's uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. they, they are they are the case in point. And I think, as you say, a lot of teams, you know, this we could a whole, whole new different podcast on whether this you know is this all Guardiola um, that he's brought this you know obviously not him alone, but I think he is. Yeah, he's had a big impact on 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 that aspiration, that ambition. There is one glaringly obvious, I think, reason for the goals going up in the Premier League that we just haven't stumbled upon yet. But thankfully, it's covered in the final word in the Times today. The new handball rule, mate. There's going to be 20 more goals a weekend from here on out. Anytime it touches a defender's arm in the box... It looks like it's going to be a penalty now, except if you're Gabriel, the Arsenal defender, who basically missed his header and it landed on his arm, which for me, actually, looking at some of the other penalties that were given this weekend, I'm I'm surprised it wasn't. Uh, In particular, Victor Lindelof, Manchester United against Crystal Palace, given as a penalty. I thought that was insane. And then Spurs, Matt Doherty versus Southampton. I looked up the rules. I spent all night on IFAB trawling through why these were handballs. And... In all honesty, the rules themselves haven't particularly changed, but the interpretation, the Premier League has adopted what has been going on for the last couple of years in the rest of the world, which seems basically, well, it seems from the outside that, of course, we don't really take into account whether it's deliberate or whether the player meant to handle it. If their arm is away from their body and the ball hits it, it, it's going to be a penalty now. Yeah, and I, you know, as someone who um, has spent um, far too long defending VAR, then it's uh, it's it's this makes it hard. It makes it harder than anything, actually. And I think, I mean, Tony Cascarino in the the last word makes the I think the most pertinent point about all of this, which is the the penalty is totally out of whack with with the crime. You know, it's it's here. You know, here is a ball that's bounced around, bounced off someone, hit an arm that is raised because you know someone is just in that sort of you know in an awkward position or whatever and suddenly you're a goal down on something that is you know basically pinball and I think that's that's the issue the 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 issue is that it it feels it feels out of whack and that's why people are getting so angry about it um not that we need any excuse but yeah I think of all the all the bits of uh that you know this is the hardest to defend because if it you know I think the game can adapt to a lot of different things. I think it has to learn to adapt. And, and I still think, you say, if we can't get VAR right, then we're, we're being a bit thick. But this bit, I think the, you know, let's not blame the referees, I'm afraid. We, you know, easy, easy as that, um, you know, that is and people love to do. This is a problem for the lawmakers and they've got it wrong. There's no two ways about it. They're trying to, they're trying to make it so that there's more scope for consistency of decisions but I don't think it's going to work because you know the, the thing about VAR is that you know offside decisions even the new the, the sort of the more the, the newly kind of stricter directive about goalkeepers not leaving the line on a penalty kick they're objective 
You can't, you, you know, th that's black and white, really. Um, the handball can never be that, because even if you say outside the silhouette, an unnatural silhouette, that's subjective. And you know, you, I, I think that Lindelof's position was natural. You know, he's got to be balanced. He's got to to say that you've got to have your hands beside your side is just a complete nonsense, really. And I think the the thing that really the law should be focusing on is really if the defend does the defender have the opportunity to avoid handling the ball. That's not the same as intent, because you know it, it, intentional is 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 gone. It's out the window. But if they didn't have the opportunity to avoid handling the ball, then I I think again it comes back to the the punishment doesn't fit the crime. You know, Doherty's was a complete completely lun like absolute lunacy. It deflected, I think, off Winks's Winks's boot and bounced up off his arm. I and mean, what the, what the heck has he got to do to get out of the way of that? And Again, the punishment—he's he's only just inside the penalty box. The punishment doesn't fit the crime, and uh, yeah, I—I I, I think the, I think this has got to change. It's the law. I mean, we've given them an absolute kicking just a minute ago, but you'd hate to be a defender in modern football, wouldn't you? How the hell do you try and defend in the box with your hands behind your back and you know keep agile? Because as you know, you hear about—he used to hear it a lot with um, free kicks and things given with people challenging in the air. Alan Shearer always used to say it, didn't he? You can't jump without using your arms. You can't defend without. You know, whoever you're playing, whenever you're having a kick about in the park with your mates, you throw an arm out, don't you, and try and stop someone running or keep keep pace with them. And that's where you're going to get ones like Doherty, where it hits three other people, bounces up and catches your little finger. It's it, it it's just so, it's so unfair to the defender that it's going to make it incredibly hard. And you have situations like in the Champions League final where you get people accusing was it Mane of you know almost kicking the ball in the arm region to try and win a penalty mm, mm. it's a similar it's going to become a, it's a similar thing to diving where you play for the foul you play you're looking up as a striker right I'm in the box right is he going to throw his arm up right uh, now yeah got it bang penalty that's what my old friend uh, Glenn Hoddle was saying on telly yesterday I think he was saying that you know you could imagine as a coach he could imagine almost practicing that you know learning how to sort of do a dummy get a, get a defender to throw his arms up and, and flicking it Get at it. I mean, if that, you know, I, I think that may be stretching it, but, um, you know, you're certainly going to be teaching defenders to sort of run with a, you know, like they're in a straight jacket, and that's, that's just as daft. I mean, looking through the IFAB laws last night, it is not a penalty if the attacking player deliberately kicks the ball at the arm of the defender. How on earth is the referee going to be able to judge that, even if you watch it back? I mean, if you're, if, if you're in a wide area, no one's in the box... Don't you, you just blast it at the defender's arm and say you were crossing it, even if no one's there. I mean, it doesn't make any real sense. And one of the issues for me is it doesn't improve the game. It doesn't enhance the game. I would rather see a penalty given. Imagine, imagine this scenario. I would rather see the fourth official say to, to Jurgen Klopp at the weekend, Christiansen has denied Mane a goal-scoring opportunity outside of the box but it was a goal-scoring opportunity. You can have a penalty and he'll stay on or you can have the red card and a free kick. I would rather see that in the game than, than, than see Matt Doherty's penalty given when Gineppo was trying to roll the ball into his striker's feet who had his back to goal. It did not deny a goal-scoring opportunity and then one is given to the team. I'd, I mean, what's the point in giving a penalty? I mean, I've always thought this. This is before handball. I've, I've always thought a penalty should be given if you denied a goal-scoring opportunity because the the result is a goal-scoring opportunity. Result, obviously, if a player has his back to goal in the corner of the penalty area, he's about to roll it back to his fullback and he gets fouled. It wasn't a goal-scoring opportunity. Why would you give a penalty for that? I'm not trying to change the entire rules of the game, but all, all I would say is if you are going to change the rules of the game, it has to improve it. I mean, this in, this in no way improves football. It just doesn't. The penalties that we saw given, Victor Lindelof could not have done anything about the ball hitting his arm. He wasn't opening his body up trying to block a shot. He was running back to try and cover the goal. I mean, it was... It was I mean, I, I don't blame the referees. The rules are there, and I think they did enforce them correctly. And I think Martin Atkinson was almost like, I'm really annoyed that I have to give this it probably makes us all look bad but letter of the law is it's a penalty I think I think uh, Graham Sooners made this kind of peak football man comment which but he was, he was probably right when he said that if you were to do a poll of professional footballers none would say that these should be handballs and I think that's you know that's a problem 
that's a big problem. I think the other thing is kind of irony about VAR is that it's made everyone realise that they want the power the final of the final decision to be to rest in the hands of the referee on the pitch. You know, I, I think if because th this should be something that the referee, <laughs> I'd be happier if the referee was deciding always. You know, um, and I know that won't always be perfect then, but. I think if you know if the, at least we're seeing the referees using monitors for some things now. I just think that it, their hands are kind of tied behind their back, boom boom, um, with 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 the laws that they have to deal with now. Even the kind of old t-shirt rule. I mean, it's just madness. It's absolute madness. Your arm apparently begins beneath your armpit level. That little top bit there is now officially your shoulder because football said so. And um, <laughs> last year it wasn't. Last year it was part of your arm, but this year. It has become part of your shoulder. And look, biologists everywhere going crazy, you know, textbooks changing up and down the land, clearly, because of football. But it, but it, like I say, it doesn't make football better. And although we're, it's one of the many adjustments that we're going to have to make when it comes to VAR, Matt, I think you're right. It is, for me, I, I am one of those people as well that I think VAR is good. But I think this element of VAR has put us into the category of, uh, you know, I immediately thought, right, this is it we're in the mode where we're going to start getting rid of things from VAR and this will, they'll get rid of this in a couple of seasons and it will be like the silver goal and we'll get rid of a few of the other elements and we'll refine it because I think, I don't think anyone really has a massive problem with offsides. There has to be a line somewhere. Let's be honest. All right. We can argue about where that is, but I think it has been better, even though it, there has still been some contentious points. Goal line technology, aside from that game against Ast uh, for Aston Villa against Sheffield United, has been perfect. And I think, look, if the ball crosses the line, now we know pretty much. Um, and that's perfectly fine. But I think some of the decisions, for example, the referee going over to the screen in the first couple of weekends has worked far better than we had last season when the referee didn't go over and have a check of the screen and make that final decision. So I think it, it's already being refined, but I think things like this won't last. They can't last because it, it, I, I don't know if fans enjoy it. I don't think players will enjoy it. And I can't see, I really can't see the benefit. I do think there's been progress in the sense of, well, I think any reasonable person, um, and I know football makes many of us very unreasonable, but in reasonable thinking has realised that the system is to stay and we, you know, the issue now is to keep improving it rather than to what we don't like and say, it's got to go in the bin, you know. I, I would like to think we've reached a point where VAR is, gonna, is, is here now and the idea of taking this basic technology and shoving it in the bin just doesn't make sense. So it's here and you're right, let's keep improving it. Let's work out what we like, what we don't like, what works, what doesn't work. And it was never going to be perfect and it was certainly never going to be a panacea, but let's just be intelligent enough. Like I say, I, I thought originally going to the screens was unnecessary, time-consuming, uh, and it, 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 it actually is better that way. So, you know, let's just, yeah, let's keep making it work, as you say, for, to, to make the game better um you know the fact is it make you know christensen would have stayed on the pit that was a key decision in a game and you know we spend most of our time arguing about how vars got it wrong why don't let you know there is a classic case in what was an absolutely key decision for a match that var made right so um there we go happy news just before we go this week there is more live football that it doesn't stop does it midweek it's going to be the third round of the efl cup thomas come he's, he's got his colors on He's ready for it. It's, the game's not even until Thursday. He's going to be wearing a Lincoln shirt every single day this week until they face Liverpool on Thursday night. I mean, Tom, you've got to be feeling excited going into this one. You, you're the favourites, right? I mean, excited is not the word. I should also just clarify that I wear a Lincoln kit most days, whether we're playing Liverpool or not. Um, and I should also clarify that this is actually a training top, which is more of a Monday vibe. I'm saving the kits for the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, and I would, I, I really don't want to be the grumpy old man right now, but when we beat Bradford to secure the game against Liverpool, the only real emotion I had was sadness, to be honest, because home to Liverpool, I grew up in Manchester, so I have a natural slight anger towards Liverpool anyway Lincoln City <laughs> at home and just no fans there I mean it, it's just, that is to me is just one of the saddest things and we're not the only ones Leighton Orient home to Tottenham uh, yeah. Morecambe home to Newcastle Luton home to Manchester United no fans and I, it's, these are the games where fans make the entire spectacle completely different Lincoln I would say this but we have a fantastic home following we have a group called the 617 who stand in the corner like a bunch of 
crazy mad ultras and sing the whole way through the game. So whether Mo Salah turned up and we lost 7-0 or whether they play the kids and maybe we get a 2-1, it would have been an amazing atmosphere. And instead you have these players that have, you know, worked their way around in the Football League and I'd be interested in Gregor's point on this, but you know, I just really don't want that feeling of, you know, Rian Brewster rolling in his hat trick to make it 6-0 and it's deathly silent. And that would just be I, that's just so tragic like for those players and I mean that's, that's it's just really sad and I mean I, I really don't want to come across as a complete party pooper but, e- but even the idea of winning 1-0 I'm going to be sat in my living room watching it on telly and I'm just going to be like what the hell this is a once in a lifetime <laughs> chance and there's no one there there's nobody there nobody going crazy there's, you know, <laughs> the kit man's there with a drum trying to make as much noise as he can and it's just it's so tragic Tom, I'm amazed you haven't got accreditation, bought yourself a one-man banquet and just stood up in the press box, you know, playing your drum for the whole whole game. Why aren't you there? Well, I, well I've always taken the view that I, de- I never want to mix um, work with being a Lincoln fan because it's well, you're just... you're doing uh, it now, mate. Uh, well, I, no, this is, this is me as a fan, but I'm not going to go and report and have to say, you know, write an intro that says, Rian Brewster was brilliant as Liverpool beat Link- poor old Lincoln City 5-0. Not a chance. No, never, never going anywhere near... <laughs> I'll try to get excited about it but I just can't and I'm, we're not the only ones this is this, this to me is where fans we're going to miss them the most I was at Luton at the weekend and as you say they are playing Manchester United for the first time since 1992 and then on Saturday they go to the rivals Watford for the first time in 14 years at Vicarage Road and it's like you know the the players are kind of thinking this is you know really really exciting and for the for the club, but the fans can't be there for two kind of big games that are a kind of sign of their revival. So yes, yeah, it's, it's sad and it's going to be like that throughout the season. Really, I think. I mean, hopefully we'll get fans in soon. And I think we're going to end a lot of our podcasts just like that. Important that we get the fans back inside the ground soon. But in the meantime, we'll keep you right up to date with everything. You've been listening to the Game Podcast from the Times. If you enjoyed the episode. And make sure you give us five stars, review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. Hit subscribe and you'll get Thursday's episode as well as soon as it's released. This has been the Game Podcast from the Times. Thanks for listening. We'll see you Thursday. Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.